1: Forget Shark Week. Here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, it's Bomber Month. On the 3rd, 13th, and 23rd of November, we'll feature a different historic bomber from the World War II-era North American B-25 Mitchell and Boeing B-29 Superfortress to the Cold War-era Avro-Vulcan. Never mind the announcements. Listener questions can wait. Let's get straight to the bombers with your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello.
0: Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Fighter Pilot Podcast. We are right smack in the middle of Bomber Month 2020, and you've heard from our occasional co-host, Boat, Trevor Boswell. He took the B-29 Superfortress last week, and he's going to take the B-25 Mitchell next week. But this week, we have our first foreign bomber to be covered in any of our bomber months. We're going to talk about the Avro Vulcan, and we've got retired squadron leader Martin Withers here from the Royal Air Force. How are you doing, Martin? I'm fine. Thank you. Great. We are dialing in long distance today. Where are you? I'm sitting uh, just near York,
2: the old York, sort of the northern part of England. (laughs)
0: not new york huh
2: no no
0: (laughs) (laughs) old york okay fair enough and i am in san diego so i think we're probably about eight hours apart or so something like that but i appreciate you taking the time yeah that's good well i wish we could do these interviews in person i think they're so much better but alas with covid and travel and everything else probably easier to do it remotely right Good. All right. Well, I hope you can teach us about the avro Vulcan. this is yet another one of the aircraft I don't know very much about. And as the podcast gets longer in the tooth, that becomes more and more the case. At any rate, we'll talk about it in a moment. But let's start with you, Martin. Where are you from? Tell us about your military career and what are you doing now? I
2: grew up in South London and went to school there. And then after a, de- a law degree at Birmingham University. I uh, decided law wasn't for me. In fact, I tried it very briefly. Okay. But I'd already got the flying bug because we had a thing in in the UK, University Air Squadron linked to the RAF. And uh, I did about 80 hours flying in chipmunks while I was still at university. And so I reverted rather quickly. I found that I really didn't want to be a boring lawyer. I joined the RAF in 1968. At the time, we had a really large air force spread all around the world. It's totally different now. We had something like six bases where they trained you to fly. Now there's, you know, I'm talking about basic flying instruction. Right. But anyway, so I came out of my training, unfortunately not selected to fly fighters which is what I wanted. That's what everybody wanted. Of course. But I chose the thing closest to it when I got onto multi-engine aircraft, which was the Avro Vulcan, which was an incredible airplane. I have to take everybody right back to 1945, which was the end of World War II. And the last thing to cut off the Avro, I call it Avro Vulcan, but the Avro production line was the Lancaster Mm. and the Vulcan was the next thing off the line, only eleven years later, which was a four-jet aircraft, a true delta, capable of flying. Well, physically, it would fly up to sixty thousand feet, but uh, we were limited by Mach number and also breathing apparatus and so on. But it had a, a regular ceiling at fifty thousand feet, which, of course, in nineteen fifty, well, it actually came to service not until nineteen fifty-six, but it had been first flown in fifty-two, and. Uh, it was just outstanding, and it was such a leap in technology when you think of a big, lumbering, four-engined, petrol-driven oh my. thing to this with um, <laughs> four Rolls-Royce Bristol Olympus engines, actually, to be fair, mm. in the days where we had lots and lots of different manufacturers all going, and then they eventually merged into rather boring sort of either Rolls-Royce or British aerospace. Ah, uh, yeah. But anyway... The history of it goes on, but it was an incredible aircraft, a big Delta. It was big because it had to fly, capable of taking a huge bomb. Anyway.
0: Martin, I'm sorry, but I want to get to that, but I want to finish with you. So right. uh, you spent 23 years in the Royal Air Force. Did you fly the Avro the whole time, or did you have other assignments, just broadly?
2: No, through my 23 years of flying experience, I was either flying a Vulcan or instructing on uh, Jet Provost.
0: Oh, okay. And how many hours did you accrue in the Vulcan? In the Vulcan,
2: I ended up, because I flew it in a co-pilot, a captain, and then later back on as uh, an instructor on the conversion unit in the squadron and as display pilot for seven years later when it's much later, but that's another story, uh, I got uh, over 2,000, 2,100 hours, I think, on the Vulcan.
0: All right. Well, I hope to get to that other story here in a bit, if you have the time. But that's impressive, over 2000. What was your longest flight, do you recall?
2: Well, I do remember the flight because, of course, I was... um Involved in the Falklands conflict in Ooh. 1982.
0: Well, I want to get to that too. So,
2: Well, that makes the longest flight, which was 15 and three quarter hours. But, um. Oh
0: my goodness. <laughs> All right. Well, so, and then uh, after you left the Royal Air Force, it's been already, what, over 20 years since then? 30, I guess. Uh, what have you done since?
2: Well, I became an, an airline pilot with different airlines, flying turboprops and flying Airbus and Boeing. My last flying job... Uh was with a lovely little air- airline, which did actually go out to San Diego, oh. called Zoom. It went bust, sadly, <laughs> in, in 2008. So that was my last oh. flying, getting paid for it. But I was lucky enough to then fly the Vulcan as a display aircraft in uh-huh. displays over for seven years, until it finally came to the end of its life. I was flying the, the last flight ever for a Vulcan. I can tell you it's the 27th of October 2015.
0: Wow. Okay. Yeah, because it used to do the air show rounds and now it's been gone five years. But okay, well, there's so much to unpack here, Martin. I'm really excited about this. So let's go back to the beginning now. So after World War II, the Cold War heated up, I guess, bad way to put it, but you get the point. And so we needed a nuclear strike aircraft. And is that what the Avro Vulcan was designed to do?
2: After the war, we needed this aircraft capable of flying to 50,000 feet and carrying a huge nuclear bomb and being capable of flying in high Mach numbers. So the design specification was given to different companies, and we came up with three different versions of uh, an aircraft capable of doing that. The Vulcan was just one of them. The others were called a Valiant and a Victor. The Vulcan went on to be the last one of the three, which would end, still ended up as a bomber right up to 1982.
0: Okay. Was it coincidence that they all started with a V, or was that just the system in Britain at the time?
2: The first one to get airborne was the Valiant, and they'd already called it the Valiant. So somebody in a high level said, well, we have the others beginning with V as well. So they became (laughs) called the V-bombers. Okay. They were all V-bombers, and it became the V-force. Yes. All
0: right. So that was what it was designed to do. Did it keep that role throughout its life, or did it end up in a different mission that maybe it also excelled at?
2: Well, it was all designed to go for all these aircraft were designed to go to high level to bomb from high level. And the only target was USSR. There was no real consideration of any other target. But then after Gary Powers in the U-2 got shot down in 1960, then our roles changed and uh, we had to go low level. Our whole technique of flying was to go low level, uh, ideally in bad weather, at night so that we wouldn't get detected to drop just a nuclear device from low level
0: Mm -hmm. so like for example sometimes an f-14 tomcat for example was designed for fleet air defense but later it was adapted for air to ground and it actually did quite well at that role and so i didn't know if maybe later the Vulcan was adapted for other missions that it was well suited for
2: the role of the Vulcan, as along with the other V-bombers, was to be a high-level bomber. But as soon as it was discovered that the Soviets had the SAM-2, which could go above 60,000 feet, then the role changed so that we ended up going in at low level to get through the defenses that way. And the Vulcan was the only one which was strong enough to sustain prolonged low-level flying. Oh. And so after 1968, when we changed over to, for our... The defense of the UK and for the nuclear deterrent to be the Polaris submarine, then there were only a, seven squadrons of Vulcan left. That's about seventy aircraft who maintained a low-level strike capability up until 1982. That was, this is what I come on to later if I talk about um, that was their only role. Okay, the idea to go in as at night or in bad weather as low as possible, and we reckoned we could still get through the Soviet defenses. Sure. uh, Probably not as a first strike, but get there to do a huge amount of damage.
0: Martin, so... Tell me in your mind what, quote, low level means, because in an F-18, we generally go to 200 feet. In combat, you could go down to 100 feet. I think I've been to 80 feet, and I started getting a little uncomfortable. (laughs) I've heard of F-16 strikes on, I think it was the Israelis when they struck the uh, Iraqi nuclear power plant, went for hours at 50 feet, which is crazy. Uh, What was a normal altitude for the Vulcan?
2: No, our normal training was 300 feet. That was what we considered to be low-level. Okay. certain circumstances, you'd go lower. I mean, if you're going over the sea without any threat, we'd quite happily go down to about 80 feet. Ugh, yeah. And, in fact, the Vulcan with its big V-wing, uh, which we seem to be s- stabilized down at about 80 feet, you know, almost ground effect. But if when you're dropping conventional bombs, because all we had were the nukes, and then when we did end up dropping conventional bombs, you had to be above 300 feet, for the bomb to actually arm. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it just didn't explode on contact.
0: Well, or if you I assume you had uh, fins that would retard the weapon?
2: Yes, it had a just a, a little sort of drag chute which right. went out behind so it didn't go off underneath the aircraft and blow the <laughs> aircraft up.
0: <laughs> exactly. That's never good. All right. Can we talk through some of the variants and then which ones maybe were your favorites, if you had a chance to fly more than one?
2: Well, it's just a natural progression of aircraft. The Mark One was really testing out the possibility of having a proper Delta aircraft and it had straight leading edges. It was just a big flying triangle. Everyone refers to it as a flying triangle. Okay. So that was really what came off the drawing board. But very, very quickly, they discovered that when it got up above about Mach, well, certainly above Mach 8, 9 or 9, mm-hmm. it started to buffet a lot. So they had to develop this new wing but it was so it's real absolutely brand new technology to get sort of wash out on the wing so it narrows and curves a bit towards the outside of the wing and so that was a big breakthrough they made it even though people started flying them the mark one they then sort of did a an in service refit and made it the 1a which the same shape of wing which uh has got a couple of bends in it at the front to make it wash out at the ends okay they did a 1A, which was basically the same internal aircraft and controls. And then the Mark II, which was the real Vulcan, if you like. It had incredible flying controls. It had elevons, meaning that the elevators and aileron mm-hmm. moved together. They were so massive. The elevators were something like the size of a F-104 wing. And what it did is it made it a very maneuverable aircraft. And this huge, great wing that it had meant it could maneuver at really low speeds, at high altitude. And back in the sort of late 50s and 60s, it could outmaneuver any fighter up above about 45,000 feet. Oh, wow. Certainly something like an (laughs) F-104. They had a rearward-looking radar, and if you saw it coming... You just had to just slow down, turn it, and it was gone. And so was any uh, heat-seeking <laughs> missile. It was incredible aircraft for it in its day.
0: Okay, so that was the Mark II, and that's the real uh, Vulcan, as you say. I thought I read was there a version of it that was retrofitted for refueling, not to take but to give?
2: Right at the end of its life, yes. Mm. Uh, post the Falklands conflict, which we'll get on to. Oh, yes. All the tankers that were down in Ascension Island to feed what was an air bridge from Ascension Island to the Falklands were Victor tankers. And they needed a tanker to support the air defence aircraft that we had back in the UK, the F-4s and so on, because the Soviets just playing silly games, they were still coming, just doing all that, just like they do now, just playing cat and mouse. So we had to have a tanker. So they quickly cobbled together some of the Vulcans into tankers the Vulcan had a huge, great bomb bay and a normal practice when we weren't carrying bombs, there would be a couple of extra tanks in there. So uh-huh. there was one at the front, one at the back, each carried about 8,000 pounds of fuel. And to make a tanker was really quite easy because they just put a third tank in the middle that gave it another 18,000 of fuel and latched it onto the standard hose drum unit that was on the Victor tanker it was strapped to the back of the aircraft this is a short term measure this is back in 1982 mm-hmm. when uh, we were still had everybody down south and they actually made the housing out of wood out of mahogany it's the simplest way to do it just rig it up to see if it would work mm-hmm. and they actually left it made of wood with some metal fairings on for the <laughs> cause it only actually was in service for about 1 year okay in fact, I did the refueling trial with the Vulcan onto the Vulcan tanker, oh. uh, the final release the service trial, where we took on a full load of fuel and then gave it all back to the victor, oh. which was very interesting. And that was sort of while the Falklands conflict was still going on, but...
0: Well, and I'm really looking forward to building up to the Falklands discussion. But I think we found the right guest to talk about the Vulcan, Martin, because you uh, (laughs) did the tanker trials. You said you flew the very last flight of the aircraft. So I'm glad for your time today. Thank you very much. In case I forget to say it later, but I won't. Did any other country fly the Vulcan besides the UK?
2: No, not at all. But interestingly enough, um, because it was all going out of service, the Falklands conflict started on the 1st of April, 82. And we'd already started disbanding Vulcan squadrons in uh, 81. Uh-huh. The first Tornado squadron was going to be 617 Squadron, Dambuster Squadron. And so they actually, the last seven, I mean, there had been a lot more Vulcan squadrons, but was 617 Squadron. That was the first one to disband. And others were disbanding at the time the invasion started.
0: It was the proliferation uh, as far as other countries flying it. Sorry, the Argentinians
2: invaded the Falklands mm-hmm. because they'd already bought quite a lot. Argentina had bought quite a lot of our hand-me-down ships and things like that. They did actually ask whether they could buy some of our Vulcans ah. as they it expanded, just to have a high-level uh, aircraft. Okay. But nobody else ever operated them. Well, nobody did operate them, no.
0: And then as far as the looks of the aircraft go, we've already touched on this, but it was effectively a flying wing, but with a single vertical stabilizer. You talked about the ailerons, I guess. And uh, do you think the shape was just one of many design solutions to the initial requirement for a bomber to do what they wanted this one to do? Yeah,
2: I mean, it was quite amazing because the Valiant, which was the first one to fly, just really looked like... um, what became a um, jet airliner? It didn't look very different from that. Okay. It was a good aeroplane. It could just about meet all the specifications in terms of performance, but they were still working on fairly small engines in those days. So that was very conventional. It obviously had a little bit of wing sweep because as soon as you go up to high level, you have to have swept wings. Mm. The Victor was an uh, incredible design. I should, if you ever see the look of it, you, there's never before or since in anything that really looks like it. But in fact, it was much more conventional than the Vulcan. In fact, there'd been no experience at all of fly. I think the uh, Luftwaffe during the war had flown some Deltas, but nobody else had flown a Delta aircraft, a pure Delta without a, mm-hmm. a separate tailplane. So to establish that this would work, Avro, the manufacturer, built one third model of the Vulcan to do all the different tests, particularly slow speed and high speed tests. We're talking high speed when it started to go supersonic. And uh, they used these things. They just made three of these little aeroplanes. And uh, from that, they really worked out, along with wind tunnels, you know, how to build this thing, which was the first and almost only, (laughs) until you got the flying wing at the only sort of Delta going, but it turned out to be incredible. Yes. It was quite lightweight. It had plenty of room in the wings for fuel, which was good, which none of the others had. And it really was something thinking out of the box to start doing that. And it was actually the idea, but not the much further design that came from Roy Chadwick, who was the designer of the Lancaster. And I say the Vulcan came off the same production line as the Lancaster.
0: Oh, fantastic. But
2: Roy Chadwick uh, he died in an, in an air crash, actually, before the aircraft ever flew.
0: Oh, he never got to see the fruits of his labors.
2: No, he didn't. And I th- it wasn't much more than an idea stage. I, it wasn't long after he had the idea. But...
0: I see. Well, that's unfortunate, but uh, comes with the territory in, in this business. All right, moving on. So how many folks fly in this at once, and what are their roles?
2: Right. To start, they considered it actually to be a single pilot aircraft. Really? But that was changed to be two pilots, although it was very cramped okay. <laughs> cockpit. But one thing they did make was they just had a single stick in it. It didn't have a, a normal large aircraft column. But down the back, sitting down in the dark, facing backwards, <laughs> we had two navigators, a navigator radar. Nav- radar was also the bomb aimer. But the navigation equipment they had was hardly any better than the Lancaster. So we had a proper navigation plotter who literally was sitting there with his chart out and marking as he went along. And right up to the end, they upgraded it by having a really, really good compass system and some things like, which could give you airspeed and sorry, ground speed and so on better, Doppler devices. So it was upgraded, but we never had any sort of modern-day navigation aids in it at all. And we used a sextant to secure our position Celestially. Like going across long distances, like flying across yeah. the Atlantic. We used a sextant. Wow. So we wouldn't have been
0: allowed in any
2: airways, <laughs> but because of the performance of it, we were able to fly above all civilian aircraft. Okay, And uh, we do that.
0: Well, okay, so two in the front and then uh, two navigators in the back? Sorry, two navs in the back.
2: We had an what's called an air electronics officer, the AEO. All right. He had the radios. There wasn't room in the front for different radios. He had the radios, and he was the sort of flight engineer. Most of it was automatic, but with a certain amount of switching, he had to do to sort of selecting uh, things and controlling the electrics. I can imagine. But his important war role was that he controlled the electronic countermeasures, the ACM, Ah. and he had a rearward-looking radar, and he had the sort of chaff dispensers and the flares and so on. So he was, you know, an important role. In peacetime, it was a relatively simple role down the back.
0: Martin, was the method for sharing information amongst these five individuals mostly verbal? In other words, did the plotter have some way to show to the pilots where they were, or was it simply a communication type of thing?
2: Oh, no, just communication. <laughs> wow. you <know>. All right. <laughs> Obviously, when we were flying along at low level, then the pilots would have maps, but uh, the rest of the time, no, we had no clue where we were, really. <laughs>
0: <laughs> not like today, where we have uh, what we like to call global situational awareness. Okay. And then same oh, thing for the other fellows uh, as far as approaching the bombing. In other words, there's probably some amount of crew coordination that was practiced and understood that at certain points of the mission, you would say certain things with a meaning oh. and you don't say anything you're not supposed to at critical times, et cetera.
2: I mean, the role of the navigators was, one was the navigator radar, the other was the navigator plotter. Right. Now, the normal transits from A to B, then the plotter will tell you, you know, approaching the turn and turning left, he could actually feed in the heading to the autopilot and that would go around.
0: Okay.
2: On a bombing run, obviously, the nav plotter would be get you sort of in the right position. And then the navigator radar would have to identify his aiming points or his offset, which is what he's aiming at, mm-hmm. albeit some distance from the target, but tuned into the system. Right. And then he, again, he could trans by moving his controller to put it on, we would do a selection in the back, which would go to bomb. We select bomb, and then he would get us we would get a steer, I think just like an ILS sort of steer. Okay. Going left, mm-hmm. right. And so we would steer in on his following his commands. In fact, when he got close to the target, you sort of say, putting it in now. And then he, he would check to see whether it was he'd got the crosses over the right place. And then he'd say, yes, take it out. And he sort of we would communicate verbally uh-huh. like that, but linked to us information on the screen in front of us okay hardly a screen actually on the dial (laughs)
0: yeah Yeah, i can imagine what it must have looked like for based on when it was designed so if things go badly and we need to egress the aircraft how does that happen with five people
2: well this is where we as pilots always accept that we're god's gift and everything so (laughs) we had ejection seats but the rear crew they had a door underneath the main entrance door was in the middle of the large, just in front this being in front it's significant in front of the nose wheel uh-huh. and that you climbed up a ladder on that and then once you were on board you stowed the ladder away and strapped it down inside the large cockpit and then if they had to get out they had to open the door either manually or it could just be blown down using compressed nitrogen uh-huh. so they connected by static line and they just had to cross their arms, and jump down the door as though they were parachutists. So that's how they had to do it. Okay. It's extra help from seats, which you would sort of push them out of the seat a little bit. But uh, yeah. it was very definitely one for the pilots and <laughs> one for the guys anyway.
0: I hope, Martin, that the standard in the Vulcan community was that the pilots stayed until the three were safely off and then ejected and not the other way around. Well, oh gosh, the pilots are gone. I guess we should go too.
2: You really need to depressurize the aircraft Mm -hmm. before you could open the door because the pressurization within the aircraft held the bolts closed. So the best thing to do is you ejected the (laughs) co-pilot. (laughs) <laughs> okay. You check the co-pilot, the canopy goes, the aircraft depressurizes, and then the rear crew would go. And oh, there, was, there were several cases. The captain would be sitting there in an open-top sports car without, <laughs> he'd, sit, he'd have his windscreen, but nothing more. Yeah. And then the rear guys would go. And they were static lined with little lights on it, so you'd see when they'd gone. Uh-huh. The captain would see that, and then he would bang out. Oh, wow. That was the norm, and it happened quite a few times over the years.
0: Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you. So this was successfully executed?
2: Oh, yeah. There was one very well-known case where they were trying to do a world record flying back from Australia. It wasn't in one go, but it set up the record. And there's a very senior officer, I've forgotten his name now, but an air marshal flying into London Airport, Heathrow, to land there. Weather was way below limits, but they hadn't got any fuel to go anywhere else. And he actually crashed into the undershoot and he and the both pilots ejected and were fine. And the rest of the crew were all killed. Oh, And I think there were more than three people down the back because there's a room for two more people. You can hardly call them seats, but somewhere where you could sit uh, down the back.
0: So what's the philosophy in the Vulcan community, or maybe just in UK in general, on that? In other words, is it better that two people survived instead of seven or eight or nine dying? Or maybe they should have gone down with the ship?
2: Oh, no, no, no. Everybody accepts that when it's inevitable that you're going to crash and you can't help the guy, you don't go with them. Right. But but there have been several cases because, I mean, another one, which was out in Malta where the pilot, it was really mishandled by the co-pilot, and then the captain was slow to pick it up because the Vulcan, one big thing about the Delta is it can get into a high sink rate. It's not really stalled. But it's going down like a brick, you know. It's <laughs> who cares just about the falling signal? out of the sky? That's right. Yeah. And then the slow engine response means he realised he was sinking too low, coming in low and slow, and so he made the mistake of pulling back. You know, you're just thinking you're going into the ground, but the worst thing you can do actually is pull back because it actually creates so much more drag. Right. They actually hit the undercarriage on a lip of the edge of the runway. Oh. By then, they're full power came on and uh, the aircraft sort of went off again but it went off without one undercarriage leg and with the back end on fire and that one sadly he it started to roll upside down and he lost control and then the two pilots again got out and there were five people in the back who were killed i mean this is going back through quite a long period of history
0: of course Clearly not an ideal system. Obviously, you'd love to save everyone, but I guess save who you can. Mm. I just think for the pilot to live with that must be very painful.
2: Oh, it was. Yeah, And particularly because he got court-martialed as well.
0: <laughs> oh, well.
2: Well, he got off it, but he had to go through that.
0: He had to go through it. Yeah. No, that's no good. Martin, let's talk about the different weapons the Vulcan can carry. Anything, first off, forward firing or air-to-air? I think I know the answer to this.
2: No. No, it had... <laughs> The only self defense it had was um, flares.
0: (laughs) Okay, Um, that's better than nothing, right?
2: As I said to you, its best defense was that it could outmaneuver in its day. I'm talking when it was designed in the early 60s and things. Yes. It could outmaneuver most aircraft. So by being at height, it felt pretty safe. It was totally contrary to what you have for the B 52. There was no self defense at all. It was considered at a very late stage. We could have, I'm going leaping ahead again to the Falklands campaign, but we could have put air to air missiles on. It was physically possible we could have done it, but no, we never ever carried any.
0: Okay. I have to uh, stand up for my American bomber, Martin. I think the B-52 early versions did have a tail gun for a while left over from the World War two style, but I think that was quickly replaced at any rate.
2: I thought they did have more self-defense. Because...
0: Oh, I thought I heard you say that, that it did not have any, so I, I might have misunderstood. Oh, 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 sorry, yeah. <laughs> no problem. Either way, we'll, we'll stick to the Vulcan. So uh, a lot of types of air-to-surface weapons, including nuclear, of course, and what? Some general-purpose weapons as well?
2: The first nuclear weapon we had was called the Blue Danube, and it was just a huge, great thing. And for that reason, and because that we were preparing aircraft to fly, carrying that thing, which weighed about 10 tons, Oh gosh! we had to have a big bomb bay. And because you've got a bomb bay, then they made provision for ordinary dumb bombs. You know. mm-hmm. And the Vulcan could carry 21 of these, and they were on three rows of seven. And you could select sort of different ways. You could just drop one bomb or you could select the different bombs. Sure. And that was true of the other B-bombers. Okay. But they never got used uh, until the Falklands campaign, which... Uh,
0: That's okay by me, Martin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Based on what it was intended for. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in Northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com slash careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com slash careers. Visit today. Was a nuclear strike in the initial way it was designed as a high altitude? Was it at Thought that the Vulcan would get out of there? I mean, in other words, on our A4 episode, it was understood by pilots that it was probably a one way mission, but was survivability somewhat assured on the high altitude mission?
2: I, I think it was a big pretense uh-huh. that there was survivability because we would have a sort of diversion airfield, which would be a, a main military airfield in Scandinavia. Uh-huh. You really knew jolly well it wouldn't be there. But interesting enough, they still carried on with this sort of belief that when they got the tornado, introduced, which the tornado took over from the Vulcan in certain, that role of the low-level nuclear strike. They didn't attack as many targets, you know, as distant targets as the Vulcan was supposed to, because it had shorter range. But they all felt, the tornado force thought, well, it's a bit of a nonsense really, because it is a one-way mission, you know. <laughs> well, you, you might be able to parachute down somewhere, but...
0: Well, the world isn't going to be very habitable after that but that's right uh no i meant whether you'd get caught in your own blast but for the low altitude mission yeah you had i'm guessing a loft maneuver or something
2: no the low altitude actually was um just a simple lay down from low level really with just a time delay on it
0: okay so it would burrow into the ground and wait a little while and then detonate it didn't
2: even burrow into the ground but
0: oh just well i mean it's going to skip along right
2: yeah (laughs) No, I mean the first bombs, the Hiroshima bombs and things. They were designed to go off above ground level. It's not an impact,
0: mm-hmm. airburst.
2: Well, an airburst, yeah. But, I mean, an airburst, a true airburst is defined by where the ball of the thing doesn't touch the ground. You know, that's an airburst. Okay. If it does touch the ground, it's a groundburst. And it doesn't mean it. The bomb actually landed on the ground before it went off. I see. Okay. But anyway, we were told we would get away from it. The escape maneuver was just to sort of go along. And then for some reason, turn right or something. They seemed to think it couldn't catch you if you darted. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anything to give hope, right? The lovely thing was all the time I was flying the thing, people say your job was to go and drop nuclear bombs on people. Could you do it? And all the time I was flying it, I thought it was so unlikely that I would have to do it right that i don't think i ever asked myself the question could i do it i do think as everybody else does really that if you're sent out to do that and you think that it will do some good in the knowledge that you're not going to come back to anything and all your family are dead and one thing and another you could have just gone on and done it you know it's uh you haven't got time for any sort of shortcomings if you're really worried about it you're not doing the right job
0: Yeah. Well, and I think you could obviously go into a big discussion here on the military member who is right trained to do a certain job and does it somewhat without thinking. Mm-hmm. But then I think you have the other side of the arguments, especially in the Vietnam conflict of people who said, look, you need to think about this. This isn't a just war and I'm not taking their side, but obviously there's a Good discussion here that, with your permission, Martin, we can save for another day. But, yeah,
2: no, no, I quite like to discuss that because I, I did have strong feelings about that, and I'm surprised yeah. that people don't say more about it.
0: Yeah, well, especially these days where we're so connected and everybody has the device in their phone that allows them to see what the leaders are tweeting at a moment's notice. But again, I tend to think that there should be a military where people are trained to do a certain mission Mm. and ideally we have the right people in control of them so that we only do the right things Mm. uh for the right reasons but anyway let's move on
2: can i just add to that what we're on we're in a short really short time
0: yes please we have a big thing in england we've
2: go to war for queen and country or king and country okay i must admit i've always felt that i could do anything for queen or country Mm-hmm. but it's really like being a mercenary if you're suddenly told oh well we need you to go over there and help do something and just kill those people and right and so on it's really rather different you're very detached from it to me that isn't what i joined the raf for it would just, it would have been to to defend the country and um
0: yes and that was my poorly made point a moment ago is mm-hmm. is we need a military that does what it's told but we need people who tell it only to do the right things
2: mm-hmm. yeah
0: ideally All right, so it could fly up to 60,000 feet. What's the highest you ever had one?
2: Well, we were only allowed to go to 45,000 feet. Okay. So the highest I went was 50,000 feet.
0: (laughs) Ah, Just to see or maybe on a maintenance check? Because it was my
2: nav radar's 21st birthday and he wanted to play (laughs) the bagpipes at 50,000 feet. What? (laughs) Now, we got to 50,000 feet and we turned the transmit button on and everything and heard this squawk from the back and it turned out he didn't know how to play the bagpipes, but we went to 50,000 feet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was surprised. I thought maybe you'd say there wasn't enough air in the uh, cabin. I'm sure it was pressurized, but still. Oh, boy.
2: Flying out from Australia over towards Singapore, we hit some really big storms, and we tried to mm. outclimb them. On that occasion, we went up to 50,000 feet as well. But had we lost pressurization at that point, our oxygen equipment wasn't adequate. You know, you had to have pressure breathing Above about forty-five thousand
0: feet. Well, and your blood will boil very quickly yeah. too—not just the breathing. Yeah, that's not a good place to be. I took an F eighteen over fifty thousand and started suddenly getting a little anxious, so I didn't stay there very long. But <laughs> how about? I believe it's transonic only, right? So, I mean, did you ever see Mach one, or was that an absolute no-no?
2: The vulcan unfortunately, part—I say a design fault, but a lack of anything further back to bring the nose up. Uh, once it got above point nine it started to nose down Mm -hmm. and we had auto Mac trimmers that if it started to pitch down too quickly, we just had to roll it through 90 degrees. So it wasn't actually going down. It was pitching down. I see. So uh, it actually helped pitch it up, but the Vulcan, it was not supersonic, Okay. but they'd seen it supersonic because it, (laughs) but when they analyzed it, it wasn't because it was the Mac meter said it had gone over one. Ah. Yeah.
0: Well, there are always errors in those, at least on the early versions.
2: As it happened, the Victor did go, so was on it without any oh. pitch down. But that's because it was a conventional airplane, right? And it had enough power. At the back. I say you had to be careful because I remember flying; you could hit, you know, the limiting speed quite easily in the climb with eighty percent on. You know that. Oh wow! <laughs> it had loads of power. We were doing an exercise called Keltex where we simulated attacks on ships and we were just a platform and we joined by two i think the american f-104s from germany they joined us to become our missiles under the wing just pretend missiles and then we launched them off You see against the ship
0: uh
2: uh-huh. <laughs> right. we were climbing at uh, 300 knots when we were only using 80 percent power because the f-104 found it very difficult to stay with us at 300 knots and climb steeply because it then needed reheat. It was very much a sort of on-off reheat, I imagine. So it was just merrily trogging up like this. And suddenly we realized we were exceeding our max limit in the climb with 80% set. (laughs) (laughs) So we had plenty of power, and we could have gone supersonic easily from that point of view.
0: Yeah. Well, and I imagine the nose down moment uh, is a part of the what shockwave propagating over the wing oh
2: it's just rolling off down the back yeah
0: how was it to fly martin was it a joy to fly or was it a lot of work
2: no no it flew flew like a fighter because i said of the huge wing and the huge flying controls Mm -hmm. and plenty of power it had a great rate of roll because the elevons you know once you got established in the turn they were effectively they were all elevators the worst thing was it was limited to well in training or so sort of normal use 2g above 2.3, they had to sort of look at it. But if it, it hadn't been for that, but it was nice to fly and the, and the controls, you had electric trimmer on top of the control column. Uh, so there's none of this. I don't know if you've flown a big transport type thing where you have to, I have not hold
0: it other than my airline airplane.
2: <laughs> yeah. But you have to have a great big trim wheel, which you trim, you know, with one hand and fly with the other hand. And right. we didn't have that. And so, but it really was nice to fly. The worst thing was the visibility out of it. Oh. It's got tiny little windows.
0: and uh, That's too bad. Did the folks in the back have any windows?
2: Initially, they weren't going to. <laughs> but they did. They had two little portholes, one either side. So they got some light in.
0: <laughs> A little something. Okay. Yeah. How about strengths and weaknesses? Uh, and this is always the difficult part, but what did you really love about it? And what was one thing that really annoyed you maybe about the Vulcan?
2: Its real weakness, if you can call it that, is its fuel consumption. It was designed as a relatively short-range aircraft so we're capable of hitting Moscow from the UK and then recovering back to UK. We only had about five hours fuel in it. But in other respects, you could abuse it. What I was saying about the high sink rates, something you have to be careful of, but just like any sweat-wing aircraft, you know, Guys have gone in on the undershoot in many an aircraft, I'm sure, because they get low and slow and they pull back and they don't see the change in attitude, but the actual angle of attack's growing and, and they stall in. But very little to say wrong with it. They, they, probably the rear crew will tell you there's something wrong with it because they should have had parachutes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Well, how about notoriety? Where would the Vulcan be? Most well-known, obviously, in the United Kingdom, but is there any place in uh, movies, or uh, obviously it did some demonstrations at the end of its service? Well, there
2: is a James Bond film. We've got a Vulcan in it. I can't remember what it's oh, called now. I think Thunderball. Thunderball. Yes, from
0: 1965.
2: Oh, well, I yeah. knew <laughs> the answer to that. But I don't know how many people recognize it as a Vulcan. But uh, okay, what absolutely did change things was the Falklands War itself, you know, the Vulcan got a lot of publicity. If it hadn't been for the Vulcan, War, put it this way, the Vulcan would have just disappeared out of sight and nobody would have missed it because so many aircraft would come and go. Right. But we got a lot of press and so on for, for actually putting a bomb on the runway there. Everybody got to know the name of the Vulcan, if nothing else. And then we managed to get financial support to get one flying again back in 2008. But i don't think it would have happened if it hadn't actually already gained this public interest from the falklands
0: well let 's talk about that now, Martin, because we've been hinting at it the whole show, but yeah, that's right let me see if I can give a summary and then you can provide the details. So we know that there was a conflict, but I believe it was in nineteen eighty two a handful of Vulcans went from Port Stanley. Uh, about 8,000 miles. I don't know if it was one way or a round trip, but it took, what, dozens of aircraft to get a couple aircraft to attack a runway. And the idea was that it was helping to keep the runway uh, out of use, but also it was the point that, hey, look, you're not going to get away with this. We are able to reach out and strike you even before our ships are all the way down there. Is that a fairly broad overview? Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that's a very uh, top level uh, summary, but no, no, no. But quite simply,
2: I think the Vulcan was Britain's nuclear deterrent. It only had one role, its role by this stage in its game to go low level from UK to drop atomic bombs, nuclear bombs on the USSR. It didn't have another role. That's all we trained for. We didn't do anything else. And then in 1982, 1st of April, 82, when General Galtieri invaded and captured the Falkland Islands, which uh, Britain claimed to be theirs, uh, Prime Minister at the time, Margaret Thatcher, the Iron Lady, was absolutely determined that this wasn't going to happen and we were going to liberate the island. And we sent a huge task force of ships carrying Marines and everything, aircraft. We had two carriers carrying... Sea Harriers, among others. Well, aircraft, but it, they were the sea harriers and Chinooks mm-hmm. and this like that. And much to my surprise, I saw this happening, but I thought, well, the Vulcan won't get involved because we're a nuclear bomber with one role. I was flying the Vulcan at the time. I was the senior pilot on the squadron, and I got called in to say that uh, my crew had to be back on Monday after Easter weekend because we were going to start learning to do air-to-air refueling. Now, air to fueling is normally, you sort of have quite a bit of time to learn it and practice it. We got some air-to-air fueling instructors over from the tanker squadrons, and uh, they, they leapt in the seat and showed us how to do it. And <laughs> we had to learn to do air-to-air fueling day and night, but only the captains got trained. There wasn't time trains for co-pilots. Okay. But we were going to do conventional bombing, so they had to somehow... Find all the bits to put back in the bomb because we hadn't dropped any conventional bombs for oh, 10 or more years. Wow. And neither of my rear crew, the navigators, had ever seen a conventional bomb. And we had to do a load of training. And uh, so we had to re equip the navigation systems because even though it was good enough to go against USSR over land, it was totally useless over the sea, just a radar. So we had inertial nav systems fitted and we had some extra jamming equipment because we only had jammers which worked against Soviet radars. And yet, of course, we were going against other radars altogether. And it really, it seemed like a joke to start with. I mean, when I was told I was going to learn to do air-to-air refueling, I went to my pub on Saturday and I said, you won't believe what they're doing. I think I'm looking at it and I think we're going to go and bomb Argentina, you know. I was probably giving away top secret material. <laughs> That's right. But, uh, but anyway, we did. And then it, suddenly we realized that this sounded absolutely like a mission impossible because really we we're attacking an island, the Falkland Islands, to take out a runway. We we're coming in low level at night over the sea to bomb using radar when the radar can't see anything for a star until Mm -hmm. you pull up a bit and then you really just hope i mean we had the inertial nav so we knew within about five or ten miles where we were but after something like seven hours without a fix Mm -hmm. we uh, were concerned but then we were going to pull up eight to ten thousand feet to give time for the navigator radar to find something to aim at and go in but and this is how it turned out in the end. It did have time. We weren't announced. They were caught with the pants down. And uh, we managed to get through and uh, drop our bombs without getting shot down. We did get locked onto by one of their really high-powered, early double-barreled guns sending quite big shells at you at an incredible rate, mm. and then fly it back to Ascension Island, where we were taking off. Ascension Island is almost exactly halfway between the Falklands and the UK, but it was still 7,000 mile round trip. Wow. We had to refuel in the air. Well, it was meant to be six times, ended up as seven times, only one of them in daylight. So it was an incredible <sighs> task, which involved so many different people and so many different elements, so much training. Yeah. And it wouldn't have happened if we hadn't had availability of Ascension Island, because it was a very sensitive matter that The United States, they couldn't really support us very openly without upsetting the whole of South America. But we did get a huge amount of support in other ways from them.
0: Well, I hope I can find it, Martin, because there is a YouTube video of the mission with animation of all the bombers and fuel tankers that were involved in the plan and how they had to consolidate and get you out there and back and it's really impressive because they put a lot of work into oh. the plans on this and it worked
2: well it did but we had there were so many unknowns it was a journey into the unknown because i'd never seen what it'd be like to get airborne we got airborne with 11 tankers they got airborne first mm-hmm. and they were refueling one another on the way down this is the first time i'd seen it and the first time <laughs> Anybody had done this sort of thing. Right today, everybody's sort of used to their armed forces. They actually, during their time in the armed forces, they've probably been asked to go into action in some way or another. But nobody I knew had had anything to do with going to war. We, the whole thing about the Cold War was it was the longest period of peacetime. For a long, long time, I don't know how how many hundreds, hundreds how, of years. But yeah, <laughs> thank goodness it was because of the other, yes. the alternative was
0: yeah. So that really put the Vulcan on the map, so to speak. Well, it did.
2: What was quite incredible is the there's so many reasons why it was seemed impossible, but the it was so difficult even to find the target. It was very high risk. Originally, we thought we were going in low level, and to go in low level would have been just a nonsense because we wouldn't have even found the target. Uh, night mm-hmm. so it was very highly defended with modern equipment the vulcan even if it was doing 400 knots it was a pretty easy target so we thought it was just a one-way mission really oh, wow. to no avail yeah
0: and just to be clear martin you said earlier but what was your role in that were you one of the pilots
2: oh i was the captain of the first one the black buck okay one wow yeah so uh and i got a DSC for it
0: <laughs> okay
2: So, yeah, I've had lots of bits and pieces on the Vulcan. I can talk.
0: I would say so. Have you written a book on it yet?
2: No, no, no. Oh, come on. (laughs) If you get Vulcan 607, that is the name of the book. You can get it on Amazon. (laughs) Okay. It tells you the whole story in detail. Because what we claimed, we were the first strike. The Argentinians had invaded the place and they'd been there for a month. Mm -hmm. And so they got well dug in and they were well settled. Ours was the first attack on the Argentinian positions with this opening of the bombing. The aim was to disable the runway. There's only one runway. It's only short, four and a bit thousand feet. So to put that out of action, that was the aim. That was the real aim of the target because they didn't want any of the Argentinian aircraft to be able to land there in emergency or to refuel or rearm or do an attack on our ships. That's the ships carrying all the troops, going everything. That was vulnerable But They didn't want that to happen so they could have gone dropped their bombs refueled there enough to get back to mainland uh, which is about 200 miles away Mm -hmm. by argentina so by putting that one bomb we actually got one bomb on which we didn't expect because the nav accuracy of the bombing system is is about the same as a lancaster so 21 bombs got one bomb on the runway which is going sort of angled across 30 degree angle to it so you get more chance of hitting it. It's no good going just straight on. Or...
0: No, of course. You want a little bit of a crossing and drop a string yeah, of bombs. That's
2: right. And we could have, the width of the runway, it was only about 150 feet, we could uh, have got two bombs on, but one was better because it meant it was nearer the middle, if this makes right. sense. No fast-shed aircraft ever landed on it after that. Oh, wow. Not the hooks and things like that did. But it also demonstrated to the Argentinians that we had the means to attack. Mainland targets. If we wanted to, so they removed a lot of their fighter aircraft, which were there to give fighter support. to sort of attacking the bombers, if you want to call them. Yeah. The A fours and
0: the attack had a psychological effect. In other words,
2: no, it showed that they needed to defend their mainland thing. Mm-hmm. So they moved some of their latest Mirages up north again. When the people came in with the daggers and the A fours, they had only just about had enough fuel to get there and back. They certainly couldn't stay and fight. Right. They needed some backup, and they didn't get that backup. That was great. And then, of course, the effect on morale on both sides Mm -hmm. was tremendous because the Argentinians were telling the islanders that nobody was coming to help them. And then they suddenly woken up in the middle of the night with 21 bombs going off. (laughs) They knew the cavalry had arrived. Also, the Argentinian forces were made up of about 50% of conscripts who just did not want to be there. The poor guys, they just want to be home with mummy. <laughs> <laughs> so the morale sunk in the book, this Roland White's book, which I recommend to everybody. He said it was like being 6 0 up at half time in a football game, you know. Yeah. But uh, suddenly they realized that they brought on some really good players.
0: So, Martin, tell me about the Valkland you flew after your service in air shows and etc now here in bomber month we've had some guests who fly still the b-29 and the b-25 and there are organizations here in the united states who keep those bombers flying at relatively high cost i mean they're getting older so what was your experience with the vulcan
2: again because the Falcons war happened the vulcan stayed on in service for best part of another year as a tanker we talked about that Yes. To service the fighter bases up the east coast of the UK. But then the base at Waddington was then going to be converted for what was a British aerospace design Comet airborne radar aircraft, which turned to nothing. It, but they'd spent a fortune on setting up the place for this AEW uh, Nimrod. Based on a comment, AW Nimrod was supposed to be coming into service at Waddington. So they got all the big crew in there. They got everything established. They bought simulators. They put all the hangars, were sort of kitted out for this aircraft. And then it turned out it, would, it just would not work. It had a, an incredible design to have a, a radar that would go all the way through 360 degrees, sort of went 270. And then it was linked by computer to the one at the back that was rotating in the other 60 degrees or whatever it was. But it n- never worked. Well, it worked perfectly on the ground. And when they got it airborne, they discovered that the whole airframe was flexing. And so this signal just didn't work. And to get it right, they had to put in more and more computers. Now, computers back then were the size of a great big fridge freezer.
0: <laughs> That's right.
2: And the heat that was get- generated inside the aircraft, and they had to put Better air conditioners in. And then there wasn't even any room left for the operators who were supposed to be doing the AW operating. Anyway, it's a long story, but it got cancelled, it got scrubbed. And we then bought the E3, E3A from you. But again, it took about another year to get that established before the aircraft could fly out of there and be serviced there. I see. So in the meantime, they had these, a couple of Vulcans. Which were just used for training the engineers. They didn't post them all away because posting them all away and bring them back was too difficult. So they they were sitting there with virtually without a job. So they were using these aircraft, taking the bits, putting them together again, just to get doing all the training. Somebody came up with the idea. Well, it would be much better if we actually get this aircraft flying again, and then these engineers are actually working on a flying airplane rather than this sort of dummy. And they said it was done as a no cost exercise. In the good old days before you had cost centers and lots of computers, Shell sponsored them with some free fuel. The crew, everybody, because they were on a military salary, but you don't get paid by the day. And technically there was no increase in salaries because nobody else was employed. But then I say, because they didn't really count how much petrol went into cars, taking people backwards and forwards, or how much fuel went into aircraft individually. It flew for several years, both one aircraft and the other who were display pilots right up until 1992. So they got about eight years of display flying. And then one aircraft was called XH558, was the one with the lowest hours on it, was still left. But some people decided they would really try and get this flying again. And in about 1997, they had enough support from the original manufacturers, Rolls-Royce and British Aerospace, to actually set them ahead to uh, get this thing in the air again. And it cost about 8 million pounds, but then nearly 10 years (laughs) to get it flying again. So it first flew again in 2007. There were two test pilots on board, two ex-Vulcan pilots were on board, one who was a test pilot. They flew the first flight, and then I was the co-pilot on the second flight. And then that year I flew really as a co-pilot, for the rest of that, the first season, but I got checked out as a display pilot. After that, the other guy who had been checked out, the chief pilot, he wasn't well, and he left. So it left me as the only qualified display pilot. Oh, wow. Uh, that made me the chief pilot, you see. It's very nice way of getting promoted. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And we built up a team, and we ended up with uh, five qualified display pilots. We took it in turns to fly in different seats, Sure, and it went on for seven years. We did loads and loads of displays and fantastic flights with the red arrows and things like that. Mm-hmm. I had an absolute ball. The trouble was the 1990s, the way Rolls-Royce were quite happy to support it, the risk culture and everything, things had changed dramatically yes. over the sort of almost 20 years. The people in charge of Rolls-Royce didn't want the liability if anything actually went wrong with this aircraft, they could, or anyone crashed, or anyone they had certain amount of responsibility for it. In the meantime, that we couldn't deal directly with Rolls Royce or BAE, we had to deal through an engineering company in Cambridge called Marshalls, who are the intermediary. It's only like you know you can't go direct to to BMW or to Chrysler or anything; you deal through right. agents. They. Had signed a contract to maintain the aircraft for us, or be oversee the maintenance we had our own mechanics and people, but for up to ten years, but they were able to give notice give us one year's notice, and uh we'd already exceeded the hours we thought we'd fly on it, but at the end of that time, or oh, sorry, after only nine years, I think it was no seven years so they gave notice that they no longer had any people qualified on. An aircraft of that vintage Mm -hmm. and so on so they were cancelling the contract and Rolls-Royce and others would not allow anyone else to take on the role of an overseer because Hmm. because to be absolutely honest they just wanted to see this thing parked up again in (laughs) one piece.
0: They didn't like the liability. No
2: and so we had a wonderful last year when we knew that it was going out we used twice as much fatigue life on the aircraft and <laughs> <laughs> why not <laughs> we went out you know with a really good flurry at the end although sadly the, the last flight which we had planned which was going to be a wonderful flight all had to be cancelled because they had so many followers so many people who would have wanted to come to see the last flight that where it was based near Doncaster the next RAF airfield it was an area where there was narrow country lanes and all the rest of it and the police and everybody said all these thousands of people turn up for your last flight we're going to close the airfield because emergency services couldn't get through and that sort of thing and if they closed the airfield and the aircraft got diverted to civil airfields mm-hmm. we could get charges for millions of pounds of oh,
0: well,
2: so we had to cancel the last flight we did a last flight but it was done in secret if you like
0: yeah well and now they what are on display in various museums i hope Well, we've got Vulcans in
2: a number of museums, but this one, sadly, is still sitting outside because we hope they had wonderful dreams that they're going to make it a focal point of a Vulcan academy, but they just haven't got the sponsorship for it. We got so many followers while it was flying, but as soon as it stops flying and won't fly again, I did the last flight in it, last landing ever of a Vulcan. Mm. It's just like any other museum exhibit in there it doesn't well they do run it they run the engines and they can taxi it yeah it's not that special anymore
0: as i understand i wasn't born but even the moon landings by the second or third flight to the moon already it was okay yeah we've seen that what's new right so (laughs) people have a short attention span i guess and they're done with it and on to something else yeah all right well martin this has been a really informative and enjoyable discussion thank you very much
2: i feel it's a bit disjointed because uh
0: no not at all the people who have an affinity for this matter they love to learn about these aircraft from people like you who were there from almost the beginning till the very end and so Hmm. you have a wealth of information and i'm going to put you on the spot martin i think you need to consider a book because you have some really unique experiences Hmm. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah no in fact it's enough today i got a book okay. sent to me through the post which somebody has just done a history of the vulcan
0: what does the future hold for you are you fully retired a couple times over now yeah
2: for my sins i'm very involved with an aviation museum <laughs> which has just gone into covid r- group Two yeah. uh, shut down. Now I'm at the Yorkshire Air Museum. We've actually got a Victor there, Victor tanker there. Okay. one of the only few that still runs, maybe the only one actually, and some other quite interesting aircraft.
0: Well, if I ever make it out there, I'd like to come see that.
2: Oh, do come, do come.
0: And my last official question has to do with nicknames or call signs that a lot of the fighter folks have in the later generations. Did you all play those silly games in the bomber community? In the-
2: no, no, we didn't. People have nicknames, but it's nothing to do with flying, you know.
0: Yeah, okay. All right, Martin, well, what did I not ask you about the Avro Vulcan that maybe needs to be said, or should we wrap it up?
2: I mean, the biggest thing is it's such a, a huge leap in technology to get this thing flying in the first place, and it still is quite an incredible airplane. You see the size of the thing, and it's got no lift augmentation, no devices at all, and I could stay in formation something like a sky van Do you know the old sky van but anyway it's a really slow aircraft and i was doing a photo shoot with the flies. they can open the back doors and they have people sitting on deck chairs effectively camera men, you know <laughs> we fly up behind it
0: yeah it's like a flying box with propellers
2: yeah yeah i had this thing i was flying it down to 120 knots wow. in formation with this thing in slow, he was climbing i said we don't can't really go below 140 but so there I was flying at 120 knots in a lightweight <laughs> aircraft, you know. And, right. and it's just sitting there, and you can still maneuver the thing around. It really is quite amazing. And then uh, it's got loads of power.
0: Well, that's good stuff, Martin. I mm. should go back on YouTube and look through some of the videos of its uh, heyday in the flight performance air shows and demonstrations, etc. So I'll have to do that, but this has been a lot of fun. And I really learned a lot today. I hope the listeners have as well. And I want to thank you for your time.
2: Okay. No, well, nice speaking to you. All
0: right, Martin. Well, thanks very much.
1: Right. Bye. You've been listening to the fighter pilot podcast brought to you by BBR productions. Got a question for the show. Send an email to questions at fighter pilot podcast.com. Or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show. And don't forget to share us with your network. Thank you for listening.